0: If you want to love- Wednesday at 8 p.m. Yeah, Dr. Esteban Marconi, here that we is are. Me. Music biz, Vano, Vano and more. Yes, sir. Aren't you excited about this show? I almost said television show, but this is radio. You're excited today, Yes, I am. Th- that's really great to have you Always here tonight. Always great
1: to talk to agents.
0: Yes, we're going to have an excellent agent, allegedly, David Galea who's with UTA, United Talent Agency. He's going to be our guest today, but we have a full studio tonight, Dr. Esteban Marconi. I know we Music Biz 101 and More. We have Caitlin Spurduto, our uh, student co-host here. She's not really Hello. a student. She just graduated last week yeah hey, just seven days ago you graduated how's yeah. that going so far
2: so far so good yeah. On
0: search, yeah there we go you're gonna get it and then we have tom hefter a senior manager of artist marketing at ticket the master you are the master of tickets you are the master yes.
3: Yes. and caitlin's boss
0: that's right and Caitlin's. <laughs> that's right because she's true. working uh part-time for you yep. during this interim period between now and uh her becoming a mogul uh till the end of June. Or the end of time. <laughs> yeah, I wish at the end of time. <laughs> that's that's good. She's doing okay. She's, She's doing done awesome. well for you. Oh yeah. We talked behind your back on last week's radio show. Good, good. Where we do this. Yes. Glad glad. And so we also have uh Ashley Veltner, German engineering and Ashley yeah. Veltner Mario behind the board making it happen. So David's gonna call in any minute. So let's get down to business, huh, Dr. Esteban?
1: Yes, let's give some thanks.
0: But we should give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne Bruno, Inc. and White Hat Management. With artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, and Kiss. the only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. <sighs> cpa.com when you're ready. And we should give thanks to Christine Oy. Vey, a wealth manager and the president of Oy. Vey Wealth Management. Christine has helped many professionals all around the world manage their investments and plan it for their retirement. If you're looking for some guidance on how to plan it for your retirement, if you have questions on anything, from investment portfolio management to insurance for retirement planning, give Christine a call at follow after you say whatever I say. Ready? 732 732.
2: 455
0: 455. 1510
2: 1510.
0: You can email her. Christine at Oy. Vey Wealth Leave the last oil off for savings. Yes. You should go to musicbiz101wp.com. Sign up for that weekly newsletter that we have that comes out twice a week, Caitlin Spurduto. And you should also follow us on the Instagram that's featured FatchBook at musicbiz101wp. Many of you are listening to this as a podcast. Great to have you. I hope I look good. iTunes, SoundCloud, the Spotify we're all ready for you. Mm-hmm. And Ashley, when I talk about how good I look, why do you always shake your head in denial? What What is that? I don't appreciate that. I would like, I am the talent. I am the talent, Ashley. Do you understand? You are merely an engineer. You're a student engineer. I'm a professor at the University of William Powell. I'm the talent. He has a face for radio. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. So it, it is great to be here. You know... Managing Your Band 6th Edition has been out for nearly two years. Tom Hefter. Oh. Yes. On June 6th, that will be two years. And then, let's see, William Patterson, our university music business program, is ranked one of the best ever,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: according to Billboard magazine. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, after this interview, we're going to see if David Galea, agent at UTA, thinks that this is one of the best music business programs ever. David Galea, are you on the horn, baby? I am on the horn. Are you hear me okay? Yes. David Galea yes. on the horn. Thank you, David. Thank you for calling in. We appreciate it. You're quite welcome. So we are having, uh, we have a full studio. We have uh, Dr. Stabon Marconi here. We have Tom Hefter from Ticketmaster. We have Caitlin Sperduto, who just graduated last week and wants the to be an agent call. for UTA. And then you have me. So we're happy to have you. And uh, Dr. Stabon Marconi is going to begin the questioning, are you ready? Am I right? Uh, I am. Okay. Oh, is he ready? I'm All right. David, yes. Yes. And hopefully you took, did you uh, take the oath, David, before? Did you put your hand on the Bible and say all the hmm. truth, truth, nothing but the truth, so help me? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm an extremely truthful person. So okay. Nice. This nice.
1: morning I was reading uh, your interview from Polestar. Okay. And, and I found it excellent because you covered all the bases.
0: Oh,
1: no, um,
0: so there's nothing to talk about. Thank you for calling. Yeah, that's Good it. Okay.
1: <laughs> I was uh, in the 70s. I was uh, with ICM, and they were structured uh, basically regional or geographically uh, with different agents having different um, parts of the country and then different levels of uh, venues. Uh, it sounded like UTA is still doing that. Is that true or not?
4: Yeah, correct. We are... Uh, we do operate we in a territorial system, um, you know, subdivided into many different right. uh, categories where it's club or theater or arenas or fest. I, I'm on the festival team. So I, I liaise with uh, various festivals across the country, um, PACs, there's casinos. There's there's really no shortage of, uh, of areas that we, you know, carry expertise in.
1: Right. Now, uh, if I think back. The downside of that for the artist sometimes is that your home agent that you call when you call your agency um, may not be friends with, let's say, the guy doing the Midwest, or he went out with his girlfriend or so on and so forth, <laughs> and it was very hard to get booked by that other agent. Do things like that sort of still occur? Uh, no, I
4: can't, I can't say it. Like that's salacious. Maybe in maybe in the 1970s it was a bit, uh, it was a bit differently in terms of uh, in terms of I don't know sexual freedoms where those kind of things. Right, I was uh, only making but, that <laughs> up a... I. know. I'm kidding, yeah. I, it gave me it gave me some license to make a joke, I suppose. <laughs> um, but no, no. I, actually, it's funny. Before I worked in the territorial system, uh, I will say that I always looked at it uh, somewhat with a furrowed brow, and saw, always thought to myself, like, I just don't understand this. Uh, as the QB, as the RA, I'm the master of that information when it comes to client A, B, or C. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really fully understand, you know, I, I thought that I'd be too far removed from, you know, call it, you know, just all information uh, regarding my clients in terms of specifics on the booking. But honestly, I, you know, I can't say it, you know, it certainly couldn't be farther from the truth in terms of, of the reality of the situation, I, you know. As mm-hmm. I said, I'm still very much the RA and the QB and I still possess every, I possess the minutiae on literally everything. And, right. um, you know, I, I do pride myself. I do, I don't want to call it internal politicking, but I do carry a pretty good relationship with pretty much everybody, good. with everybody, with everybody at the company. So in terms of like maneuvering through departments, whether it's, you know, music related or, you know, cross the departmental, but touch of the music department maybe isn't, um, completely music focused but yeah i do have a nice uh ability to kind of weave through the
1: company yeah so as a musician and i recall when um i was on the road and so on when we found out that one of the suits quote unquote was a musician we always took it uh we we liked them more (laughs) let's put it that way (laughs) whether they were better or not we didn't know but we just liked them more because we felt they were coming from the um from obviously from the same uh, well. Uh, do you find that you have good relationships because you were, you know, trumpet and so on and so forth?
4: I do. Uh, I wasn't a very good musician. I just got lucky that I was. Leaving.
1: Right.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
4: um, but I, I, I do pride myself on the fact that I have experienced what most of all touring bands have gone through in terms of, the day to eight, day to day of driving six to eight hours, and sleep, you know sure. when I did it, you know we mostly slept on floors, and you know yeah. you know I'm, I wasn't eating, you know <laughs> I wasn't right. eating gourmet meals every day. Um, so I, I've I've what it creates is a shared experience. That uh, yeah, I will say that that few agents um or a few professionals in our field can you know can can claim because it's it's not something that everybody everybody has done. Mm-hmm. So when I'm booking a tour, you know, I always put myself or a bit you know, I'm a bit of a mist when it comes to that stuff because I put myself I put myself back into that situation where, you know, you're driving from Atlanta to Orlando and it's a long drive. Like it has to be done, but it's a long drive and it's like right. you try to like curate around, you know, when you know long drives are coming up, and obviously the geography of the United States presents some geographic challenges when you get past, certainly past, call it west of the Mississippi. Um, so, yeah, you just kind of like try to create, um, you kind of try to soften the blow around those.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And
4: just, so I never, I, I basically curate things so it, it's as perfect as possible and as comfortable for the artist as
1: possible. Yeah. Yeah. So, does a. They... Does an act have to be sort of a headliner regionally before they get the shot at being an, open, an, an opener on a you know on a major tour?
4: Um, I think the paradigm's really changed. I would say years ago, sure, that you'd have to, like... I mean, I am a believer in kind of, like, honing your craft and, you know, obviously getting your touring legs under you and um, playing as many shows as possible. But, I, mean, I don't know, the day of the internet, I at mean, the age of the internet, I should say, um, you know, it's obviously very easy to create music essentially in your bedroom and distribute the music pretty easily. Um, And I think a lot of artists, you know, maybe not the majority of artists, but they have their music discovered fairly organically, and it could spread virally. And when it spreads virally, that creates a demand. And when it creates a demand, there's a demand there to play shows. So I think a lot of artists are actually, you know, getting their music out there and and playing... um, Playing initial shows and sometimes opening for acts as much earlier in their careers than, you know, maybe five, 10 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just because of how people can see music these
0: days. Yeah. One of the bands that you represent is Arizona. And mm-hmm. we had Jake Posner, their manager. Is it Posner or Posner? It's Posner. Sorry. We had Jake Posner oh, no. on a while back. And he was talking about how um, when he started working with them, they were not a live band. They were, like you said, sort of a. a for lack of a better term, a bedroom band. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the first gig they did, and you might have been there at the time, um, was the first gig they did, and they were not you know, really ready for prime time yet as a live band. Um, w- at what point did you sign them, and why did you sign that band to work with them?
4: Uh, I did sign them after that show. It was either that show, I either saw the first or second show. I'm pretty sure I saw the first show, but it may have been... It actually may have been the second show, um, but either way, uh, you are correct in in your assertion. I remember they played a fair amount of covers,
1: mm-hmm.
4: um, which not, you know not over no, no not an overwhelming amount, but they just didn't have uh, a full set's worth. Even though they're an opening act, they still didn't have a full set's worth of live material. So they sprinkled in a couple covers there, you know, which is a completely uncommon. Um, but and I've done this with, with a handful of acts. Um, you just sometimes you just sign on promise. Like a big part of our business is gut and I trust my gut immensely. And I I just I just saw something with these guys. I mean, like you know, like you said, when they when they when they first started, I mean their background is like I mean they're they're really truly accomplished musicians. They've met at Berkeley, um and are really, really, really good at what they do. So thusly the like the crafting of the songs was there, um, but what wasn't there for, go back to my point we just you know we just discussed was 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 like the legs the touring legs the show legs um and you know I, I i just really i saw promise there at that point they were also assigned to atlanta um via apg so i it was a combination of promise and the fact that they had the beginnings of a team around them already uh and the team i'd work closely with before the breaking act so uh, it checked enough boxes where i was going to uh I'm going to say roll the dice, but, you know, to take a chance at an earlier stage than maybe a normal would.
3: Hey, David, this is Tom from uh, Ticketmaster. I just have a question. What do you look for in an artist like that who doesn't have the touring legs on it, like, who, who doesn't have a lot of live experience? Like, what was it that you were like, wow, these guys can be good?
0: Um, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yes, you sound great. Okay. You know, sorry, I
4: thought i cut off. Um, It's you know, I again. I don't mean to sound trite, but it does come down to the songs, you know. And it's just like you see, even if it's, even if you know that the songs that you're seeing, you know, two, three, four, five years ago aren't, you know, the band's not fulfilling their their songwriting potential, and you know, on show one, show two, etc. Over that early in their career, but you can see, you can see early, um, early signs that the songwriting that they're special songwriters. Um, and if you're impressed enough with what you see at the early stage you know that the real you know the really really strong material is, is still within them but it's probably you know probably years away um from being you know from being discovered um so I, you know i think it's again i don't mean it's on try but it, it just really always comes down it comes down to the songs and the songwriting.
1: you said that uh basically about the ex-ambassadors as well
4: yeah it was a similar story um a little bit earlier, not a little bit, yeah, sorry, a little bit earlier in my career. Um, it was, I was kind of transitioning my roster, but the difference is I was transitioning my roster at that time over a kind of several year period. I, when I got my start early, early on, I used to book more bands from kind of the for world. Uh, my, my, my passion for music has always lied more on the kind of indie alternative spectrum. Um, but it takes a long time to kind of transition, you know, your roster from your, your, what you specialize in from, you know, from a certain genre of music to another, especially when I mean, there's a pretty that's a pretty wide swath of, you know, of, of like demographics and, um, you know, just musicality and stuff. So it, it took me a while to do that. And I was taking chances on it. And I was at lunch with a friend of mine uh, who was a promoter. He worked with us. Uh, he, he, and he was doing consulting on the NR side and he brought up this band. Uh, at that time they were called ambassadors and he's like, You should check it out, you know, it, it I think it's up your alley and it was it was, it, was, it was. It was a Friday, uh, in the spring and it wasn't that busy and I went back and immediately checked the music out and was like, This is really good and cold emailed the manager who hit me back pretty quickly. Uh, you know, what I did know at the time is they were pretty kind of like heavily searching um for someone to represent them on the booking side, so and the timing of my reaching out was was good. Um, and, uh, you yeah, know, they were playing in Brooklyn at the at Brooklyn Bowl, I think you know, a week or two later, and I went to go see them. and uh, again, like the songs weren't you know weren't fully there, um, but I saw promise, you know and 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 uh, what i what I, you know what I generally look for, you know, again, I, I did talk about songs being you know, my main attraction. But the the, uh, the thing I left out, which is probably the most important thing is like, I need a lack of ceiling. I need, I need to see you. Uh, I need to see you at an early stage and like, essentially visualize you in arenas. Because if I see a ceiling, then what's the point of, you know, what's the point of working with you? Like, what's the point of taking, you know, taking the chance? Because I've already set somewhat of a mental limit in terms of how far I think you can grow. So if I can't see it, and, and obviously, certainly, it's a small minority of bands that that you know graduate to arenas. But if I can't see it early on, um, then I, I generally, I generally probably give it more of a you know a second thought in terms of in terms of I should pick a band up. But with 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 ex ambassadors, I saw I saw the promise of the, of of. The, of the, you know, of a large arena band, and, and you know, did did roll the dice, and for a long time, it you know, it was a labor of love for years, even after that, where they get tours, but you know, they couldn't really get signed, and um, you know, we just built it, built it from a touring standpoint. So by the time they did get signed, you know, they could sell out, you know, the Barry Ballrooms and Troubadours of the world.
1: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Awesome. Uh, question for you: What are some of the artists that are on your roster?
4: Uh, um, some of the others in my roster. So I uh, Paramore, Ex-Ambassadors, as we said, um, I uh, Arizona was talked about, uh, a band called Bleach from Southern California, who I just picked up, Rara Rats from New York, um, Charlie Bliss, uh, from New York, who just put a record out, Bearhands, um, Boxing, Now, Now, uh, a girl by the name of Olivia O'Brien, who lives in Los Angeles, who just put a record out of the Islands. A uh, band called the Aces uh, from Utah. I uh, you know a girl group who are doing quite well. A uh, band called Flair. Um Yeah, that's that's a bit of a snapshot. I mean, there are, yeah, there are others. I'll remember them as we speak. But that's that's kind of a, a snapshot of my
1: roster. If we switch gears just for a second. Um, mm-hmm. Today we hear, of course, that Live Nation is sponsoring a tour. AEG sponsoring a tour. So on and so forth. How has the agent been able to continue to find a niche in the process?
4: We're still the conduit. You know, I I, I will say, I, mean, I think the minority of my tours, I sell the Live Nation or AG, uh as a whole. And, and frankly, I never do it. It's very rare I do as a whole. I always carve out dates um, for independent promoters or whatever promoters have history. Um, I mean, there's a way to... There's a way to do it. I mean, I have a tour on floor right now where oh, wow. I have a deal in place with Live Nation, um, but they still have less than 50% of the shows. It's just enough shows where, um, you know, it's a minimum amount of shows where I'll, they'll do a tour deal with me. Um, but I'm still honoring the history of, you know, the AG promoters who have booked the band in the past, as well as, of course, the independent promoters who I – uh, who I like to work with as long as possible, since you know they're there from the they're there from the very beginning. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, you know, the first tour, the first tour that I ever worked with, or we sold was a Paramore tour in 2010, uh, and it was it was the Honda Civic tour, and it was it was. This is when we were still at the agency group before UTN, before we had a tour marketing department, mm-hmm. and the Honda Civic tour is a behemoth of a tour, uh, and I have a partner. In uh, on Paramore, um, Ken from English has been on the, been on the show before. I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, he, you know, he, he made the decision to sell to live nation. That was the first, tour, oh, maybe he, I think he had ever done as well that we had sold it to live nation. And, and we needed everything centralized. It was just such a behemoth that it was incredibly useful to have centralized ticketing and marketing, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's, you know, there's value to comes to it. I mean, the marketing that you get between the, you know, the, the marketing you get from a Live Nation or AG um, is is useful, um, especially as you're, you know, you're not always just trying to sell tickets. Of course, you're trying to sell everything else that goes along with the band, whether it's the record or single or you know, merch or et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's useful. It, I think agents are falling into the habit. They're selling tours really early. I mean, it could be a band's first tour. Um, or second or third, but even when they're in called sub five hundred cap clubs, um, agents are very quickly going to the the big promoters and selling tours. Which I, I I rather develop an act and develop promoters that believe in the act, and then when it gets to a certain point, have those conversations. It's not a again, it's not a bad option because you know you, you know you could you could make the claim well when, a, when a, we're developing an artist having that marketing behind it, having that additional marketing behind the artist on top of what, you know, the labels are already doing as well is really is invaluable. But, you know, I like to see some, some development with, with, with kind of local promoters before, um, before you really kind of centralize things and go to a, you know, go mm-hmm. to, go to selling the tour. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you, you're a full service agency and you do have a branding person. And we were just talking about that, how you have the, uh, Paramore tour in twenty ten. That was the Honda Civic tour. Mm-hmm. W- with the Honda Civic tour, was that York? Uh, was that uh, the agency group then that sold the Honda Civic deal? W- or was that um, Par- Paramore's manager or the label? It was. It was a combination. Um, I don't him
4: about specifically, um, but it was the agency. Yeah, it wasn't. The- yeah, without respect to the label, it wasn't the label and it wasn't, no, it wasn't the manager, it was us. Okay. Um, it was, it was, um, I, I'm just trying to remember if we had reached out or they had reached out to us. I think, you know, we were on a short list and we ended up being the best option for them at the time. But oh. yeah, it was very much via the agency. Okay. And, and like I said, at that point outside departments that touched the music, or no, that were, th- that were within the music department, like, you know, like, privates or casinos, et cetera, et cetera, we did have very little other infrastructure um, outside your kind of like standard music department. Um, so it was just kind of like agents working on behalf of their clients, like kind of doing everything. Even in that, you know, to go back to the tour marketing, which I brought up, uh, you know, I certainly know enough about tour marketing and certainly, you know, more than your average bear. but I'm in no means an expert at tour marketing. And that's why it's really useful to have a tour marketing department, um, because those guys are the real guys and girls are the real experts at, um, you know, and, 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 and who specialize in marketing the shows where I just have, you know, call it at best a cursory understanding of it. Um, so that was that's 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 why it's incredibly important to have a department like that. Well.
0: With with these deals, let's let's talk about twenty nineteen now because it may be different from then. You have, uh, let's say Paramore goes out on tour now, and then you have UTA. You guys would maybe be trying to get some sponsors for the tour. You'd have the label. You would have maybe Live Nation, and then maybe you would have the the manager or the manager's company. You have all these different people trying to get these valuable sponsorship dollars. Who who is the leader there and who and who keeping everything together and then if live nation cut the deal for example who how is that money being broken up so that the artist gets some because obviously if if live nation or if you get it or the label i guess they're all getting a piece but and i'm answering my own question without knowing the answer so how about you just answer the question? <laughs> yeah no, no sorry was, the label's always gonna get a
4: piece Uh, well, label's generally going to get a piece depending on how artist deals are structured. Um, That's just, you know, that's just the paradigm of of the current kind of record contract.
0: Don't Um, talk about, we're not talking about paradigm. We're talking about UTA. I
4: I tend to, I tend to that word. Yeah,
0: good
4: Um, one. You know, look, if the label brings it in, then they're generally, I don't know what the percentage are, but they're obviously, I don't want to say even keeping the lines for the money, but we're certainly not seeing it. Um, and if we're bringing it, like I said, the label's going to see a piece of it just based on how their deal is struck with the artist. Um, we certainly want to lead with it. Um, I'll be honest, it is in the deals with, with Live Nation. I don't want to give up, give, give up too much information, but it is in the deal with Live Nation, obviously, that the first, you know, they, they are granted permission to seek such deals out. Um, but I think with the branding departments that exist within agencies, um, you know, it's it's either them or the label that are kind of securing these deals, and less so the promoter. Um, they have relationships they could leverage, maybe on a local, you know, on a local basis. But I I, I can't recall many instances where the promoter was actually bringing in the sponsor, and it wasn't someone on the artist team, whether it's the label, the manager, or the artist. Um, the other thing about sponsoring deals or sponsorships just in general is um, it is, it has become more of a rarity um, that sponsors are, that, that, that brands are spending like tons of money on sponsoring tours. It it, it it certainly was much more common 10 or 15, 10 or 15 years ago, but it's, it's a, it's a bit more scarce now. Um, they're more looking towards, kind of artist-driven activations or, you know, or the festivals or it's just a better way for them to kind of like spend their dollars. Um, we put on something, uh, we represent Post Malone, and he last year put a festival together called Posty Fest in Dallas, like sold out, uh, first started, sold out you know, immediately first time through. And we were able to put, I think that number was like 15 different, um, to get, the, to cut 15 different sponsor, uh, sponsorship deals for that festival alone. Um, and that is a much sexier, um, play for brands, um, to be, to be associated with these kind of like artists curated indiv- individualized events, as opposed to wrapping a tour bus or spot, you know, like Gone Are the Days, of like the star energy being tours or something like that. They're just, they're just not
0: as common anymore. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and if the agency did the deal, like obviously you guys are getting your, uh, your 10% commission for booking the tour, With performance. Yeah, yes, and then for is is that a similar structured percentage for uh, for sponsorship deals or is that a different vote?
4: It, it varies, but mm-hmm. it, it's certainly more than the ten percent. Um, I think it varies per deal and per client. Um, um, maybe I don't want to say per agency, but um, it's certainly more than ten. Um, it just it just varies. I think it varies per deal um, and and how things are structured.
3: So, David, so uh, for example, I noticed that credit card sponsors are a big thing right now. So, Amex mm-hmm. or Citi. Um, mm-hmm. Can you explain how that works? Because it's not really them sponsoring the tour, they're just sponsoring kind of like an ex- exclusive pre period.
4: Yeah, not, those are really valuable. Um, Amex is a, is really, really good. They're a good part as a city, and, and the but those are two great examples that you brought up. Um, really, just to, to simplify it, the beauty of, of of working with those kind of, um, those kind of companies is, is access is they have a database of called millions of people where, where you're putting a tour on sale. Um, and they're sending an email, um, you know, they're sending an email to the database of a few million people that if you're a city customer or an IMAX card holder, et cetera, you have first access to, um, you have first access to tickets. You're just, it's just, you know, it's a much broader, Uh, swath of people that you're, that you're reaching. Um, and you know, that's, that's the, you know, that's the rub with concert marketing in general. Like they they, promoters beat this into our heads and this is true. And you hear this a lot. The number one reason people don't go to shows in a certain city to see the acts that they like is they don't know about it.
0: So, and there's
4: no, like, um, you would think in the age of the internet, (laughs) like, and we're all extremely online that you're, you'd be aware of everything. But, you, you know, a lot of, I, I, I don't mean this term uh, in, a, in, a, in a mean manner anyway, but call it like lay people who don't go to concerts as much. They're much harder to reach because they're going to concerts, you know, they might be going to two concerts a year or three concerts a year as opposed to somebody who may go to, you know, a couple concerts a week who are looking for these kind of things. You know, they're looking, they're reading concert listings, they're looking at venue websites, they're, uh, they're looking at their favorite artists, um, websites and tour dates and such, but for the people that maybe you know go to concerts a lot more recreationally, um, you know, is it, 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 reaching them is kind of the most is the most essential thing, um, and that's where those tools are incredibly useful because it's, it's just
0: such a broad reach. Mm-hmm. Okay, did you have some?
1: Well, I was just thinking um, about this fee structure that the agents. Uh, The agency usually takes 10 to 15%. But on a definite sellout show, there used to be something called a nickel deal where the agent would take 5% because there was very little to do. I mean, the thing would sell out in X amount of time or whatever. Is that still uh, more or less happening today?
4: No, I've actually never heard of that before. Um, It's just straight. It's across the board. I mean, a show could do poorly or a show could do incredibly well and sell out and you still get Kind of complicated
1: the same way mm.
3: and when you say ten percent, do you say ten percent of ticket sales or ten percent of the gross or the net
4: ten percent of the band's guarantee right? well, yeah, gross income, you say it net income depending on who kind of like cut the deal because sometimes you back out production costs or something like that but, right um, you know that's a fair way to say it, and ten percent's a roundabout number. It's never more than ten, but it could be.
0: Okay, if you are signing a contract, we well, when we had Kent Fermaglich on, we had him on two or three weeks ago on the show, mm-hmm. and we got into discussion at the end about there are not contracts between agents and artists, especially at U P at U T A. You and Arizona, you ambassadors, there's not a contract stating that you're their guy.
4: It so, is a gentleman's agreement.
0: Yes, so. which is there very is nice. <laughs> done by hug, which is nice. Yeah. So if you're if 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 Live Nation or various promoters around the country are going to uh, promote uh, the next uh, tour by ex-ambassadors, Arizona, whomever, who's signing the contract on behalf of the artist? Is it the manager? Is it you?
4: No, we don't. We don't sign. We don't sign anything. Okay. Um, yeah, we're an intermediate For about lack of a better word, we're an intermediary. Um, it's it's generally the manager. Okay. Or, or whoever has power of attorney for the band. I mean, whether it's an attorney or a business manager, or, you know, or mm-hmm. the acts themselves will
1: sign them Okay.
4: But but generally, it's the manager.
1: In in the old days, if it was an AF of M contract, then it had to be a member. Yeah, of I mean, leader of the band. <laughs> I
4: would think sign so. We can't. Those began uh, very early in my career, I remember. I remember seeing those for some, again, they were being phased out, but I do, it's funny, I probably would never have ever thought of those contracts ever again, until you brought them up. but yes, uh, I, was that. Yeah. And
1: then,
4: I remember that being a thing uh, in, in some offices, not the office I worked in, but, but uh, in offices, uh, uh-huh. back in my office with some of their orders.
0: All right, so let's say, um, Paramore, let's say they decide to go out on the road, mm-hmm. routing the tour for that particular band, and it's probably different for each one, who's routing the tour? Uh,
4: and it's the agent, I And mean, Ken actually routes. Can it? Yeah, I think he's routed pretty much every tour that have ever done.
0: He generally routes the tour. Okay, with with input <laughs> yeah. from the, well, how about one of your bands, uh, Arizona? Who, who's, is that you working with Jake Poser? Yeah, I have,
4: a, I have a partner, I have a partner on the band uh, So, uh, yeah, he probably would do it. But yeah, and, or it's usually me. Um, um, but yes, it's in conjunction with um, the manager, um, and you base it based on you know I mean data, you know Spotify data where they're streaming well. I mean, look, for the most part, you're going to go to you know where the demand is, and that's generally the biggest cities. You're going to try to draw people in from secondary cities. Um, you know, if you play Milwaukee, you're you know hoping to draw people in from Madison and northern Illinois and northern Wisconsin, et cetera, et cetera. A uh, certain band, firm is an example. I mean, Paramount was very specific, uh, especially in the last tour we did. They were very, very specific about where they wanted to play and kind of more specifically where they didn't want to play. Um, I think mean, we put forth we put forth a ratting, which had was a bit more fleshed <laughs> out in terms of um, some smaller cities that we thought would be the from the Florida, but, you know, they cut, I think it was roughly four or five of them. Uh, and we truncated the tour quite a bit. They, you know, they just were like, we want to walk for this long um and you know they kind of they they were pretty vocal in terms of where they're like i said where they want us to play um, so and- it's, it's like in some cases the band may just you know crush your gut completely and may not see it till it's done in some cases they're gonna have a kind of critical eye to it and say yep no yep yep okay cool yep you can deal with this
0: yeah when i bumped into you uh it was i guess it was last week or the week before um last monday yeah yeah you were just on the uh, promoter 101 podcast and after you left uh, I hung with dan steinberg for a little while and he was talking about how much he gets involved as uh in routing tours and one thing he talked about and maybe you can uh build off of this when routing a tour he said there are 3 venues and i can only remember one at the moment but but there's the the new york venue he has to get um the ryman for example i think he was talking about like a uh uh shoot uh one of those acapella bands uh home free was this one okay. band in particular who uh uh, the guy he does, Luke Pierce, uh, is the manager of the band, and they work a lot together. So he would say, like, for that particular band, they have to play the Ryman, they have to play this one venue in New York City, not necessarily the Garden or anything, But then, and then one venue in L.A., and then they route the rest of the tour around those three dates. Is that yep. kind of how you do it in general when you do it, the it routing?
4: become, uh, the, yes. It, it, I didn't use, well, you always would try to anchor the Chicago's and New York's, L.A.s, et cetera. Uh, it's become, dates have become so competitive and, and agents and work so far out in advance of tours. It used to be, honestly, when I first started doing this, you could book a tour on two months' notice, three months' notice, put it on sale two weeks later, and you'd have enough lead time. It's not that way anymore. Uh, you have to really start working minimum, minimum, minimum six months in advance to year in advance um, to really be out in front. Um, so the way I do it now is, yeah, I put together a dream routing, and then, yeah, I get hyper-focused on uh, the Ryman is a very good example. Um, places like, I mean, I can tell you, like, the real, 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 real tough places. to get. Ryman is difficult. Uh, I get hyper-focused on New York and Los Angeles. Um, in New York case, they have been talking about Radio City, um, but, yeah, there are certain places like Brooklyn Steel, Terminal 5, uh, Hammerstein Ballroom. I mean, they're difficult venues to get um, unless you've got a pretty long lead time. In L.A., it's the Will Turn um, and, and and a bunch of others. Um, Red Rocks in Denver is, like, you got to put holds in it, like, a well over a year in advance. Um, that is extremely difficult. They, they free up. I mean, fans... Plans change. Uh, shows get booked and then canceled, you know, well, even well in advance of when they're on sale to the public. Um, but, yeah, those are the hotbeds. So what I, the, and the other one, too, is, like, the 930 Club is extremely difficult to get hold, um, uh for various reasons. Um, but I so I get focused on Nashville, L.A., New York, and D.C., and then I kind of work around them.
3: So my question is is, like, so how – how does uh, like you say you're you're working a year advance in New York, LA, Chicago, and, and stuff? How do you prevent from like Do you know what other competitive shows are going on there? Like New York's such a huge market; you have dozens of venues. It's like, do you, do you talk to other agents from other companies to say like Hey, I'm looking to book Paramore at this place." Like, how does that work? Is there knowledge sharing? Yeah, it's
4: a little tricky. Yeah, there's some information sharing.
3: and That's on a couple levels.
4: You and and by the way. I, not trying to besmirch my any other colleagues or anything like that, but like I'm, I'm not all agents ask, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which is dangerous. Um, you rely on your promoters to kind of share that kind of information because they obviously have it for you know the acts that they're booking. You know, like Live Nation promoters aren't going to have what AEG is booking, but they may have a sense because I shouldn't say that because you know also agents are playing the field a little bit, so. They may have holes with Live Nation, but also with AG in the same market, you know, and they're obviously trying to leverage the best offers for their clients. So, you know, when I say that even they may not get the show, uh, they may not get the show eventually, but they would still have a understanding of a kind of what acts are going through. But, yeah, I, I, asking the promoters, um, asking the promoters probably the best way because they've got kind of everything in front of it. But, yeah, whether it's obviously internally, you know, we've got all the information in front of us in-house, um, but... You know, I obviously count a lot of other agents outside my company as friends, and um, we do share information. Um, And it's like we kind of have an idea of kind of what's out there um, based on my conversations, based on our conversations with promoters. So, you know, you can reach out to fellow agents and see what's out there. Um, You know, I I shift things here and there. I mean, it happened a couple weeks ago where I noticed that a colleague, not internally, but an external, uh, an associate, a colleague, uh, had an act of, you know, a similar genre playing the same market uh, the same day. So I saw that and immediately, and luckily I was successful, was able to flip the dates before the shows, before the dates were announced. Um, The other thing too, and this is a pretty foolproof way to kind of get in front of it is I do, you know, you try to get the tour up as early as possible because if you jump other people, then like, you know, a concert go is not going to know that, a competing shows gonna fall on top of your show two months later when that tour is announced they just they don't they don't hold that information so they may have already bought a ticket to uh to your show um, The other thing I'll close with is in New York and l a especially it, there's such big cities that I don't wanna say it doesn't matter it does matter, but there's enough people to go around. You can have competing shows and still have a healthy engagement. It's not optimal. You don't, you know, but it, you know, the fall is, is, is the busiest time in the concert going business, um, and you know, you're going to have weeks where, you know, you can have a dozen acts of the same genre playing the same week, and you know, then it, it becomes a bit of Darwinism where, you know, obviously the bigger acts win.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh just show coverage. I'm I'm interested in some of the like sort of in, on in your life or the life of an agent. Um, explain what show coverage means and then talk about you're booking a tour all around the country, you're not going to every single show, so who's right. going to those shows representing the agency and how do you work that out?
4: Um, you cover you know, you cover you cover a fair amount of shows on a tour. You obviously as you said, you can't be anywhere, everywhere rather. And honestly most shows it's just the touring team and there can't be people out, you know, every night the managers go out and cover as well. Um, and they're probably covering equal, if not more dates than an agent is covering. Um, I try to look, you're going to cover New York. You're going to generally cover Los Angeles. Um, and maybe even Nashville as well on pretty much all tours. I try to mix it up. Um, I, you know, depending on the size of the tour, I try to cover oh, half a dozen shows. um, And you try to mix up where you go. I mean, it's very, if you're going to New York, you're going to LA, it's pretty easy to fall into the I'll go to Houston, I'll go to Nashville, I'll go to Chicago. Um, It's always more useful to go to, I've covered shows in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I've covered covered shows in Norfolk, Virginia, I've covered shows in Seattle, I've covered shows in Vancouver. Um, I just try to mix up where I go um, because the band's not, A, kind of expecting to see you there. Uh, and you get, and also like those shows, there's no industry there. You know, when you have shows in LA, you've got everybody. You've got labels, you've got managers, you've got agents, you've got your agency, you've got uh, business managers, you've got family, you've got friends. I mean, it's just like you're competing for time with the artist. Where if you go to Vancouver, you don't really have to, you're the only one there. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get more one on one time with the artist. The other thing, too, is like don't always go to winners. Um, it's really easy to show up at sold out shows and be like, like what we did. It's a lot I think it's always a lot more constructive to you know, you have a show underperform and um I think artists do appreciate if, you know, you show up at some of those shows that aren't sold out. Um and, you know, you're not kind of you're not always there with the good news, you know, you're, and not that show underperforming is bad news per se, but like, you know, it's not gonna be their best night or, you know, uh, the most exciting night for the band, but it's still important.
0: And then you're not making sure. So there's not an agent from UTA, whether it's a uh, assistant or a junior agent or an intern, going to every single show on an artist tour. It's just not possible because you guys aren't everywhere as a company. True.
4: Right. Okay. Now that's you know. But but because we have offices all over the well the world, you know, you're going to have agents from our London office at the London show. You're going to have us at the national shows, Miami. Um, you know, Los Angeles. I said, I, you know, we do have quite a you know we have a large amount of offices around the world. So you're going to have coverage from your colleagues. Um, you're going to have sh- sh- coverage of your colleagues where you know generally where I have offices in a in a um, you know in a big way.
0: And, and I bring up the, the, this whole point because since you do not since it's a gentleman's agreement between the agent and the artist, you you want to make sure that the artist knows that you love them because mm. the last thing you want to do is get get the the phone call the dear john you know sticky or something you know a text message uh dave are we're, we're moving on you know yeah so um well hopefully it's not a text message <laughs> <laughs> i can imagine that i'm sure that's going to happen uh or maybe yeah, a dm yeah. on instagram yeah, yeah um but uh i guess uh from your perspective you're always trying to it's got to be in your the back of your mind that um I gotta. I have to keep all these people, and I have to keep them happy. And that must. Yeah. Does that keep you hungry to try and continuously work hard for them?
4: Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I just have a good work ethic. I mean, I, I go to work every day, and I, I work, I, I work hard on behalf of my clients every single day. I think about them all day. Uh, I, pr- I probably only shut off my brain for a couple hours at night every day, um, but I'm, I'm always thinking about this stuff, uh, and I'm always, you know thinking about what I could do better uh what I could do more effectively what opportunities I could bring what opportunities my agency could bring etc cetera, etc cetera. um what can I do to further their career and kind of like you know carry out their dreams um in terms of you know the rat race that is our business sometimes and I don't you know I don't mean to sound like a hippie but I'm just like I am a big believer in like putting good into the world and putting good into what I do and I'm I don't I don't, as a rule, go after other people's bands and thusly people don't go after my bands. Um, it's not to say I'm immune from it. It's not to say I haven't been fired. It's not to say I haven't had bands taken from me, but honestly, it's at least in my case, it's rare. And it's because I pride myself on, you know, I'm hands off with other people's stuff. And if you're hands off with other people's stuff, like they're not going to prey on your stuff. Um, so it's, it's kind of a code of conduct that I operate with. Um, you know, and I hate to say that a good offense is having a good defense, but it's just kind of within me. There's a lot of, there's just a lot of fish
0: in the sea. Are there? Um, um, yeah, I, I guess you talk with enough agents, so some agents may get a reputation for um, that guy's a poacher. He's gonna just mm-hmm. go after everybody, and so. Doesn't
4: exist. And yeah, look, there's no.
0: I, I, I'm not gonna point fingers and say it's a long way to do business. I mean, mm-hmm.
4: some people are very successful at it. And a lot of agencies are very good at it 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 just doesn't appeal to me. I, I always see... There's a very human side of the business. And behind me is a family. And a family that I need to provide for. Uh, and behind every agent is, you know, most likely a family, maybe not. But there's still... There's a human side to what we do. You know, we're still people at the end of the day. And it's just like, I can't... I can't mentally get over the fact that I as if I was a poacher was potentially negatively disrupting that person's life. I just, it doesn't karmically sit well with me. Um, so I, I don't do it now. That's not to say if there's like, if there's one in the water, you'd be dumb not to. Um, but I don't, I'm not proactive about it. If I know an agent's going to get let go and it's like the writing's the wall, they don't have a single chance to retain that act and it's going to go elsewhere. Yeah, then you've got to you've got to put yourself forward, but you know, as as a habit, as put into practice, I I
0: don't do that, uh-huh. and thusly, I it's somewhat paid forward to me. I like to think that's good. In, in terms of of payment, are you because you're uh, an agent, but you're also in a way a salesperson, and you have to bring mm-hmm. in revenue to the company. Mm-hmm. It's a big company, so mm-hmm. are you given? a monthly number, a quarterly number, a yearly number? And how do you plan out your year or your quarter so that you hit these targets?
4: No, if there's no number, I mean, you know, you know, you obviously need to bring in, you're compensated based on what you're projected to bring in, but there's an ebb and flow to this stuff in terms of like, you got to remember, like bounds work on cycles. So you may have years where your bounds aren't really working or your bigger bounds aren't really working. You may have years where they're all working. You know, so there's an ebb and flow to it. It's not as rigid as you need to bring in twenty thousand dollars a month um It's just kind of understood that you need to be continuing to kind of build your business where the number is steady and isn't completely beholden to one or two acts you know um. Mm. Cause it's dangerous. Like, cause if you lose the axe, then that, your revenue is gone. Um, or if they only work every five years, then like, what do you do in the other four years? You have to build a, you have to build kind of a, um, you have to build a, a, a more kind of complete business where the fluctuations are on a severe. And yeah, but you're still going to have those years where your numbers are a little bit down just because you know, your bigger acts aren't working as much. And you know, your numbers are up and when they are. But, yeah, there's no, yeah, there's no set. You need to hit these numbers every month. It's just, yeah, you, you, you just bring in what you bring in every year, and
0: the number resets at zero every January 1st. Okay, uh, Caitlin has a has a question for you.
2: Uh, so if you weren't working as an agent, did you have any other, like, directions in the industry that you were looking in to work in? Or was this something that you were, like, set on or that you just, like, kind of fell into? I totally fell into it. I have no direction in my life. I
4: shouldn't say I don't have any direction in my life. But <laughs> I i kind of uh, – my wife likes to rid I kind of – I don't know if I fall into things, but things kind of just work out for me. I just kind of like – I'm a big believer in kind of like the path. I feel like life leads you a certain way, um, and you can't push against it too much. Like it's leading you down a certain path. I've always believed that. Um And, uh, yeah, I was in a band a long time ago, and I, you know, I created backup systems for myself. Like, I graduated with a degree. I had a science education degree. Um, There was a time in my life I wanted to be a doctor, um, and I just didn't want to go to school for that long. Um, I got, I didn't get burned out with school. I just, I couldn't foresee going to school for another several years. So, I kind of abandoned that, Um, but I was super, super, super into science when I was coming out of high school into college uh, and took as many science courses as I could. Um, But I was in the School of Education at NYU, so I I graduated with a science education degree, so I thought I'd be a teacher, but my heart was never in teaching. I like children, but I wasn't... Frankly, I didn't... Not that I don't care about it, but I I didn't have a passion for education. I like kids, and I like science, so I had a science education degree, but I didn't... You know, what was missing was my passion for education. So I thought I would just, I honestly thought after the, I wasn't in a band anymore, that I would just teach. Um, but I tried it, and I taught in Brooklyn for a few weeks, but I I couldn't do it. I, and I, I just, like, it was a, you know, it was a tough thing to do, but after a few weeks, uh, as much as I didn't want to, like, abandon a classroom of children, I just, I had to quit. Like, I couldn't, my heart wasn't in it. Um, I was just into music, and that's what I, thought and knew I should do. So I got lucky that I just called. I used to work. I used to, my dad used to be represented by the agency I worked for. So I just kind of called and ended up interning. And that, um, luckily I only went to intern for a short time because somebody quit when I was paid. I was on payroll like within two weeks.
0: And and that is how you got in. You were an intern and then, um, you worked, uh, they call it working the desk. You were Ken Formaglich's assistant. Can you talk about the life of an of a junior agent or an assistant to an agent? What what are the hours? What are you doing? How is the pay? That kind of stuff.
4: Yeah, my life was it, honestly pretty brutal. <laughs> uh, I mean, I was young. I was in my 20s. You could sustain it. Um, I, yeah, I was basically I was a paid intern. I was called a floater. I was a paid intern essentially for like six months um, from late from October 2000 to April 2001 and from very, very early on. I keyed in on Ken's desk like he was, you know, one, if not the most successful agent of the company. And um, I think Tal's assistant wasn't he wasn't there for the long haul. He'd been there for a bit. That wasn't his passion. He was, you know, he's really good at his job, but he wasn't going to be there for long. Um, so I just keyed in. I was like, well, if I'm going to work for somebody, I want to work for the best guy. Um, so I, you know, I kind of put myself in a position hopefully, to get that get that um get that job when his assistant did eventually quit and he did, like I said, after about six months. Um and uh I you know, Ken was at the time was a pretty I mean he still is, you know, a very thorough, thorough, thorough agent, but he was a he was a tougher nut to crack than I guess you could say. He was a pretty uh, intense guy. Um and uh so in that way it kind of presented a challenge, but I kind of went into it just I remember thinking like, all right, I I'm a much more mellow guy. I was like, I think hopefully, like the relationship, the yin yang of our personalities will kind of create this great working environment. And we did eventually get there. It just took a while, um, but it was intense. I mean, hour wise, um, yeah, I mean, I was in every day at 9 a.m. and I worked till uh, minimum 8 p.m. every night, you know, Sundays, 9. When it got really bad, 10 p.m. Um, and it was just, I do remember it's funny to think about that part of my life because it's just, I was like, not to, you know, over-exaggerate what it was, but I remember I just needed to survive every day <laughs> and every week. Um, and when you're in the 20s, you can do that because I didn't see, you know, it's funny because I jumped earlier, I, I just I fall into things. I didn't, I didn't have a vision for what I was doing. And when I was an assistant, I didn't have a vision for what I was doing. I was, I was just trying to survive. And I don't, you know, I, Again, I don't mean to over exaggerate it. I was just trying to get through to kind of what the next step in my life would be. And at that point, like, you know, like I lived check to check and, you know, I needed the job to pay my rent and eat and go out and all that stuff. So my Monday to Friday was pretty, uh, you know, which is still similar to what my life's like now, but it was just, it was just work. I was not saying I didn't go out. I went to a lot of shows, obviously. Um, but it was, um, it was really just about kind of getting to Friday and resetting. I like, yeah. And then like, I rode my bike a lot and I, I like would like explore the city and try to like really relax <laughs> and then getting to Monday and kind of doing it all again. It, the other thing about that too, which again seems really foreign uh, in 2019 is we didn't have like email. I don't say email was new because it wasn't new, but like we didn't have Blackberries. Like, when I left work, work was over. When I came back in, I had an inbox full of emails. Like, that, it, it, we didn't take work home with us. Like, you worked, and then you, you you started to get, like, a lot of the beginning of your day was just catching up from the night before, um, which is very, very, very different than the way things are now, where, you know, you work 24-7 because of some of them. So that was extremely different um, because, you know, I would only get a call if there was, like, an urgent problem. Now, if I, you know, if I, I, I Purposely, on, it's, I try, actually don't. I purposely try not to send emails after hours or on the weekends unless they're somewhat time-sensitive. I just save them in the drafts. But like, um, you know, if I send an email to my assistant on Saturday, I, you know, expect them to get back to me within the hour, um, which is terrible. But uh, hmm. you know, this is how life is. I mean, we're, we're an extremely connected society. <laughs> like people, like I'm constantly. You're just constantly online.
3: It, it almost sounds like I always say that, you know, when you get into this industry, it's either sink or swim. It's like you're it's like baptized in fire. Like you have to have the grit. You have to go on out there, especially like you said, being connected constantly. Like yeah. you're just going to you're either going to sink or swim.
4: Yeah. And it's like extremely competitive. Like you gotta want it. Of course. Um, you realize like when you finally get to be an agent, like again, I got super lucky. I was an intern for 10 days. That's like unheard of. <laughs> I was only an intern for ten days because somebody quit, uh, and they needed some, they needed a body, and I was the only body. It was a small company, <laughs> um, so that's how that's how I got my foot in the door, you know, and that's how I started getting a paycheck. Um, and again, I had the drive to be like, you know, I wasn't going to half-ass it. I wanted to work for the top agent, like, and, and you know, it enabled it put it gave me a leg up because as much as I worked for him for a long time, it still put me in a much better position um, when I got promoted. I mean, he signed Paramore. I mean, like, I started booking them. We started booking them together when I was an assistant. Um, But, you know, he signed them. If I didn't work for him, I wouldn't have that band. We just, you know, we we became partners on the band when I got promoted. Um, And I wouldn't have had that opportunity, which essentially, like, that band set up my entire career. Um, So, yeah, you got to want it. you got to put... you know, that's what I said. Like, I wasn't kidding. Like, even now, like my Mondays or Fridays, like it's not like I don't do other things, but like I, um, you know, my Mondays and my Mondays through Fridays are like dedicated to work, and I still kind of work on the weekends, but it's more just kind of checking in to make sure everything's just keeping up with email because I don't like to go to work and catch up with stuff. I like to go to work and be caught up. Um, so I'm a victim of my own, you know, <laughs> neuroses of not being caught up.
0: You mentioned how Paramore made your career. That are you saying that because you had that one big band, other bands came to you as opposed to going to somebody else?
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, I really what I meant with that. Like, they were successful. You know, I mean, it took a while. Like, you know, we developed them for a couple of years before they got. You know, they really started to really take off. But um, I was really young. You know, I got. I was fairly young when I got promoted. I think I was twenty. Nine twenty-eight. so i was fairly young to be an agent in the first place uh and then to have an you know to have an act uh, of that size was was a rarity i mean I, some people their entire career don't have an act of that size and i had it like immediately um so that kind of set me up well i mean like i said i did plateau for admittedly plateau for a while um it's like i had a couple good years but then i i kind of made the conscious decision to kind of you know, essentially develop and change the kind of acts I was working with. So that, you know, the, the the plateauing I was going through was more kind of a you know, call it a larvae stage. It was a de- developmental phase of my career where I was transitioning from being uh an agent of a certain genre to a much, much different genre. You know, it was growth. I didn't see it as growth. I saw it as plateauing, but
0: looking back it was it was career growth. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh my last question mm-hmm. uh and then everybody in the room can Laugh can laugh, or but uh, I I was just rereading uh, part of Bruce Springsteen's biography, and he was talking at the very end about he came off about, I guess, just the idea of you come off tour and then you go from one night playing in front of 50,000 people, and then all of a sudden you're home and it's you and your wife and two kids, and the adulation, all that is gone. And, And he talked about the crash and this whole mental change. Going from I'm the guy on stage to I'm the guy waiting to use the bathroom because my kids are taking yeah, out the
4: garbage. Yeah,
0: yeah <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and he had some real difficulties with that because uh, he was he was battling depression and and still does to this day. Do you have mental health training with your bands? Do you think about those things? Do you talk with them? Uh Or do you talk to managers to talk to bands about it? Do you look for signs of anything like that? Depression or things that may be a result of being on the road so much? Um, That's a good
4: question. It's only come up specifically... I mean, you, you, you kind of dance around it a little bit. To that extent, it's only come up that specifically with one artist. And I think I made a comment about, I was living in London for a while, um, until about till last August. And I think I made a comment. I have lived in New York my whole life. Um, and I came back to New York after living abroad for over a year and New York's always been my home. It's like part of me, et cetera, et cetera. And I felt really, really off for a long time, even though was home, but I, it, the play, it felt very foreign. It took me a good month plus to adjust. And I was, I was noticeably off, um, within the office, you can tell. And, um, you know, I was given some space. Like I just spent, you know, a year, year plus in a completely different country. Um, and I remember saying that to one of my artists and the comment back was, now you know how we feel when we go back from tour. And it was like really struck me because, um, you know, like I said, I I try to, as best I can, put myself in the artist's shoes because I have touring experience 20 years ago um, as much as I can. But you, you forget... You, you, again you forget the human element of, of of a lot of this and it's it's exactly as you said it's the it's the travel it's the promo it's the press it's the constant pressure it's the pressure to grow it's the pressure to perform and then it's downtime <laughs> and that has a real you know that has a real severe effect on uh, a lot of artists and they do suffer from it i mean i have a lot of artists that like you know, I keep them as busy as possible. And I think a lot of it is because they're afraid of what's behind the curtain. You know, they want to be on tour all the time because when they're not, it's you know, not that they're afraid of the self-reflection, but you know, they don't they don't really know what to do with themselves. And it's like they become so much of the person that's on stage in front of thousands of screaming fans that can't relate
1: to the person that they actually are yes if that makes sense it's a serious issue uh because of all the drug abuse that we have but it's certainly you're describing it like the uh front of the stage personality versus backstage personality and people that uh, artists that cannot deal with that and not understand the part that the back of the stage is the the real and the front of the stage isn't, uh, get in more trouble uh, than the others, of course. Uh, I'll tell you, also as an opening act, when you're out playing arenas for three or four nights, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Mm -hmm. and whatever, and then Tuesday night, you're back in uh, Utica, New York, playing for 200 people because you gotta pay the rent. And when you're an opening (laughs) act, you're not making money to pay the rent. Uh, enough. I, talk about depression. I mean, that gets very, very schizophrenic, extremely schizophrenic.
4: Yeah, that's why you're fueled by, you know, you're you fueled by the desire to success. I mean, you want it. You want to want it. You know. I mean, actors are good about that though. They they put in the work, and it's like it's hard. I it, I sometimes I don't even understand it. Like, you know, not mm-hmm. every show's a winner, and you know, I, you know, some shows you're playing in front of a thousand people, and some shows you're playing in front of two hundred people in a thousand cap room. It's like yeah. how it always strikes me that the artists can like, that's the power of music. Like you can like, you know, like you don't, they don't have to dig that deep, but they can like dig into themselves and they still, you know, in a perfect scenario, put on that same show that they do in front of 10,000 people Mm -hmm. that they do in front of 200 people. It's like, I, it's always fascinating to me because it's like, I question whether I could do that.
0: Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, Tom, do you have any final questions for David Galea? No, I think I'm good. Okay, yeah. you are great. Thank you. You're not good. So is David. <laughs> yeah. David's Thank great, you. too. D- David Galea is awesome. Yes. <laughs> Caitlin Spruduto looking for a job. Do you have any thoughts? <laughs> Thank in, you for in,
2: plugging that one. Yes, uh, yes. One question, yeah. um, kind of like an easy yes or no, but um, for, like, Paramore's last tour when False of the People opened, is that yeah. something that, like, you work with the label or, like, the band comes to you saying they want that person as an opener? Like, how does that work out? Uh, it's a case-by-case
4: uh in some cases artists have a you know kind of a wish list um in some cases i'm brainstorming um some cases the magic comes to me uh, it, that case was very specifically uh that was uh, i'm not trying to pat myself on the back but that that was completely me <laughs> um where i i had it in the back of my head for a while but i i think i'd convinced myself that the band did like weren't fans or something like that so we had gone through with that one a couple different uh, there were a couple different potential openers. we thought we had one locked in like october november and eventually decided to do something else then we had something else we were exploring and i basically again i was living in europe at the time and, and the on tour in europe so i had uh i was able to see them more often than i would just because i was around them more uh and that was when it was, like, the critical time. We had to find the package because, you know, we had the summer tour, and it was, at this point, like I said, it was January, so the tour was starting in five months. Uh, and we had to announce and put it on sale. So I kind of had an went, I went to their last show in, on the European tour, and I kind of had this A&B scenario, which was, which was good, that I was going to walk out of there with one of two options. Um, and, um, yeah, I just, I remember, you know, I sat with them with the three of them, and I said foster, and immediately they were like, yeah, that's a really good idea. We should look it them up. Uh, it took a while to get done. Um, but, but, um, yeah, there's no real, there's no like hard and fast answers to how, mm-hmm. what the process is. But, you know, sometimes I, I do actually enjoy that. I like kind of like curating the bills a little bit, but, um, you know, it depends on, it depends on the act. In some cases you're just, in, in a lot of cases, you know, I actually just send notes out and I get a list of 50, a hundred ideas from, you know, from all the different agencies. And I present it to the band. And when I present it to the band, I'll say, I like these 10 the best. And they generally kind of go off that. Maybe they don't. Maybe they're like, that's great. We don't like those 10. We like these two. Um, but, yeah, it's it, it so, so Caitlin, it's a bad one.
3: So, Caitlin inspired a question for me now. So, so, how does, like, the financials work with an opener band? Like, let's say, like, let's say you represent the opener band or, you're, like, UTA represents an opening band or a... Uh, competitive uh, or your colleagues represent the opening band. How does that financials work? It's like obviously the artist is getting their guarantee on the on the headline. H- how does that opener work? Or if you have an opener, how does that financial situation work?
4: It's like commensurate on worth. Um, yeah, if it's one of your acts or one of the agency's acts, you're gonna I don't say you're trying to take better care of them, but you're gonna look after them obviously. Um, but it's, it's based on it's it's a mentor I'm worth. And, and they only have, you know, they have like number X or number Y um, for, for the direct slot and the opening slot. I don't like to be that rigid. Uh, I like to, you know, I like to, I don't call it a sliding scale, but just essentially be like, I have a pool of money to work with. I don't want to spend more than X. Um, if it's a really, really good idea, maybe I'll spend X plus a thousand. Um, because obviously it's going to help the tour. Um, but, yeah it just it just depends on the worth of the artist and what's what they're gonna bring to the tour whether you need it you know and in some cases like if you have a sold out tour, you don't really you know you're just gonna you don't really need you don't need an act to help send you tickets like they may take the the tour for the profile of it and take less money than they're you know than they normally would just because they, you know the 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 value that comes along with doing the tour is so is so great
0: for the opening act right interesting, okay, all um, right. So Marconi, Doctor Esteban, you have any final?
1: I gave my last
0: question. You gave that was very good. Okay. <laughs> so David, you, you actually put in some some extra work today because you stayed a little bit longer, and we appreciate that you did that. Yeah, really. I do not look at my watch. See, that's because you're so good at, at being interviewed. All right, you're, you're amazing. So we want to thank you very much. So may we thank you?
4: You may thank me. I'm off to go see a band. That's what I do now. Oh, okay. All right. who, who are you going to see tonight? <laughs> Uh there isn't has to be a my company are looking at so I'm going to I know the manager I'm kind of going to just want
0: support okay so you're yeah. not going to tell us because you know the, I can't the, the five. Thing, you know. All right, they are.
1: We're going to poach.
0: It's right. We're going we're to take you. You in. can tell us the venue. It's right. Yeah, there we go. And exactly what time you're going to be there. But uh, anyway, CAA listens to every one of our shows, yep. so I would just be careful. But uh, but thank you. Let's let's give David Galea a huge hand. Huge hand. Thanks again. We really appreciate you being on Music Biz One Hundred and One More. Kenneth Hurdlewax is coming your way. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Bye-bye. Take care. Ashley, is he off? That was awful. He's terrible. What an awful, mean person. That was very good. Very good. Got a lot out of that. Yes. Got every question. Every question I wanted.
1: He and mumbled at the times, but it was yes, all right.
0: And then you, uh, we didn't have the best connection.
1: And yeah.
0: Ashley brought up, uh, she texted me, she said in the future, all landlines. We have to make sure our guests could love that be at the landline yeah so um that means they can't be on a cruise ship so we have to make <laughs> it adds an extra thing uh caitlin your question about the opening act was a very good question so
2: thanks, thanks. i saw paramour live and i love foster the people so i was like let me ask how that happened uh-huh. yeah they were good together so.
0: and no i was choice. running this afternoon and sit next to me came down on my playlist nah. by Foster Los... <laughs> Los personas. <laughs> si, si, senorita. Yes. Hey, we have a show next week, Dr. Yes, Stabon. who is that? Danny Goldberg, wow, author of... now s- this a- is
1: four-star entertainment.
0: I- I'm telling you. he wrote the book, Serving the Servant, Remembering Kurt Cobain. Yes, he was but in- he
1: also wrote, previously, Geniuses. Uh, what was it called? Working with Geniuses or...
0: Letting you hang there on purpose. Yes, keep talking while I I (laughs) Google it. Um, But he managed Nirvana, and he uh, managed a number of other bands, and he ran record labels. But um, I'm reading this book. This book is excellent. This book is one of the best rock and roll books I've read in years. He's a very good writer. It's not just a... uh, you know, just a guy. And then we, then I did this, and then I did this, and <laughs> Kurt said this, and then I did this, and I said, Whoa, it was much better than that. You're, you're
1: bumping of, into geniuses.
0: Bumping into geniuses. You've read that book. Did you assign it to your yes. rock? Yes. Uh, 208, music? he wrote, wrote it. 208? It was a long time. 208. Oh, two Correct. Was, uh, Very nice. So there we go. So, uh, no, Dan, a Dan Very Michael. interesting guy. Yeah, that'll be good. A legend. Yes. Just like you, Dr. Esteban. I hope
1: he calls in.
0: I will remind him multiple times between now and I'm then sure he said will. he'd do it. So. <laughs> and there we go. And then June and July, the Music Biz at Music Biz Nashville ses- Sessions. So we're going to have some uh, pre-recorded but awesome brand new shows all th- summer long. You're going to love it. And uh, we want to thank Tom Hefter for being here. Yes. For thank you, Tom.
3: No, thank, thank you for having me back again. And I will be here next week for you
0: guys too. Excellent. Very good. Great. And then a uh, Caitlin Sperduto, thank you very yes. much. Thank you. You must stay in touch and let us know what job you get. You must let us know if you need help getting a job, and then Tom Hefter will uh, pull strings because he's he's pretty high powered, <laughs> very high powered. No, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, he is. Ashley Veltner, German engineering behind the glass. Ah, yes, Archie with that Beck.
1: Scottish accent,
0: <laughs> very good, Ashley. I don't know what that one is. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, you're doing so well. Appreciate it. <laughs> Yes. And then, uh, Dr. Esteban Marconi, thank you so much for uh, not being on assignment and being here. Yes.
1: And thank my co-host, David Kirk-Philp, for the excellent job
0: that he always does. I am your professor, David Kirk-Philp. And at the end of every show, we do not say hello, do we, Ashley? Just scream it. Do we or do we not? She nodded no. She always nods no to me. No. At the end of every show, you know what we say, Thomas? We say, adios!